0: The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Rupinder Gill. I'm the Chief Executive at Lymphoma Action, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Ming Campbell, who is patron of our charity and has been involved with us for many years. Welcome, Lord Campbell, to the Lymphoma Voices podcast, and thank you for doing this.
1: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'd certainly value the fact that I'm patron of the uh, charity, not least of course, because I had non hodgkin inferno myself approximately 15 years ago. And perhaps we'll come and discuss that in due course.
0: We met first at the the House of Lords in 2018 when I joined the charity. And like many people, I knew you because of your political career and particularly as leader of the Liberal Democrat Party but many people might not be familiar with your sporting achievements, so we thought it would be nice to start if you could tell us a little bit about them.
1: But I'm very happy to talk about my sport. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've three lives: sport, the law, and now uh, politics. Uh, my sporting career really began um, quite sort of um, relaxed kind of way, you know, in school sports when I was 11 or 12. Uh, but I got Progressively more interested, I suppose I got progressively rather better. I was born in Glasgow, I went to grammar school in Glasgow, and I went to Glasgow University. Uh, but when I went there, I was playing rugby. And the head of the physical education department in Glasgow University had me in one day and he said, You know, you might make quite a good rugby player, but you'll make a much better athlete. And so I decided to give up rugby because of the risk of injury. And it was really through university athletics that I began to get better and better. Uh, And in 1964, slightly to my surprise and the surprise of everyone else, I ran um, inside the Olympic qualifying time for the 200 meters. And that meant that I was automatically uh, a member of the British team to go to the 1964 Tokyo Olympic Games. And I won my heat, but I didn't run very well in the next round, so I was eliminated. And we got to the final in the 400 meters relay. We broke the British record, but we weren't quite quick enough to get a medal. Uh, And people often ask me, what did I think about the Games? Well, it was the first time that Japan had been received into the committee of nations. uh, After the end of the Second World War was, what, less than 20 years ago. Uh, But it was a very important occasion because of that. And I came back from Tokyo, wiser, I think. Uh, and just as committed to sport as I had been before. All of this time I was uh, at university. Uh, law was a second degree uh, in Scotland at that time, and so I had to do an MA first and then an LLB. So that was the total of six years, which meant I had great opportunities for university sport, uh, but. As I was coming towards the end of my six years, i was given the opportunity to um, put my name in for a scholarship, uh, a system operated by Rotary Clubs. Uh, and I won the scholarship, which entitled you to go to any university in the world of your choice as a postgraduate for a year. Uh, and I applied for Yale and got turned down. I applied for Cornell and got accepted. But then I applied for Stanford in California. And I was accepted. Later they told me they never heard of the Scottish lawyer before and they wanted to see what one looked like. But the importance of that for the athletics is that in California there was brilliant weather, and you could train all, all day every year. Uh, there were brilliant people to train with, and so the quality of the training was inevitably enhanced. And also there was fantastic competition. And the long and the short of it was that I broke the British 100 metres record twice in a week, and that record lasted for seven years. But when I came back from America, I had one of those conversations with my parent who said, have you ever thought of earning a living? And uh, he agreed that he would fund me for a year while I did my tutelage at the bar in Scotland. So I actually retired from active athletics the year that I broke the British record, but it's a principle I've always followed, it's better for people to say why are you going than for people to say why are you not going.
0: It was a a wonderful achievement, must have been quite a year when you went out there and obviously we've had the Olympics this year so we can recognise the enormous commitment that it takes to get to the top of sport and at the same time you were trying to build a career in law so how did you manage to reach that pinnacle of sporting achievement whilst Also engaged in another highly demanding discipline.
1: Well, what you've got to remember is that we were all amateurs, and we were amateurs to this extent that we got $2 a day pocket money uh, when we were in Tokyo, about 14 shillings, I think, out of which we had to pay for our own laundry. So you can imagine, for nearly four weeks in a hot, sweaty climate, there's a lot of money spent uh, on laundry. So it was um, amateur. But it couldn't be amateurish. I mean, I used to say that we were the last of the amateurs, but the first of the professionals. Because in order to compete against the subsidised athletes, then we had to train as if we were professionals. And I reckon I'd train maybe five days out of seven, or six or seven years. It became a discipline. And with that, then I was able to enjoy the advantage of being a member of the Olympic team. We didn't win a medal, but we got to the final of the 400 metres rebate, broke the British uh, record. And later, in the same sense of self-discipline, when I was at Stanford University, as a first graduate from the law school, uh, spending more time on the track, I see than in the library, the same discipline allowed me to break the British 100 metres record twice in a week.
0: So you had your ambitions in terms of the, your legal career as well, and then there was a move mm-hmm. into politics. So... What what motivated
1: you to make that move? I, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer, and I'd always wanted to be what we call in Scotland an advocate, the equivalent of a barrister. And I had no money in the bank, but I had a fifty-pound overdraft with the Royal Bank of Scotland. which my father was standing guarantor for, uh, and I started, as everyone did, quite modestly, uh, with small things, road traffic cases, also undefended divorces. I mean. The system in those days was that you couldn't get divorced unless you went to the, in Scotland to the highest civil court, uh, and so it was the sort of bread and butter that young advocates dined on. Uh, and, and then I started a bit of crime, and you, one of the advantages of that was you, you learned on the hoof, uh, because of course it's instantaneous. You ask the wrong question. It gives the wrong impression to the jury. You ask a good question, get a good answer. That has an impression on the jury. Uh, all the while, making sure that you understand the law, because the judge, uh, in criminal cases, judges very, very particular to ensure that the law is properly followed. Uh, and as I um, progressed, at one stage, I became what's called an advocate deputy, uh, which meant that I was a prosecutor in the uh, what we call the High Court. Most important uh, criminal court in Scotland, and that was uh, very, very, very onerous, but enormously helpful in letting you understand how to conduct a case. And so it really was a way of, sort of growing up, as it were. And you were expected to do this because what had to, you'd give up the majority of your private practice, which might be quite lucrative, and take um, a, a salary which was nominal, really, uh, for a period of three to four years. It, it was thought to be the kind of um, service that anyone who had ambitions to be a judge should pursue for three or four years. But well, I learned a huge amount from it. And I actually, it's a terrible thing to say, but I actually I enjoyed When I say I enjoyed prosecuting view, I don't mean that. But I enjoyed the challenge Um, in in legal terms, and in advocacy, uh, which uh, prosecuting on behalf of the Crown necessarily involved. And then in due course, after I'd done about 12 or 13 years, the point came at which I was entitled, the establishment, (laughs) sort of, of, I was suitable to give up being a junior counsel and becoming a QC, and you had to apply. I was very fortunate and was told I could become a Queen's Counsel at the first application. Mm. And it was on the basis that I would continue to do some criminal work. uh, And so, therefore, I was sometimes acting for the defence in serious cases like murder or rape or large-scale embezzlement or or, or, or severe injury. And again, that was a learning uh, process as well because You had to ensure that the case was presented uh, on behalf of the defence to the utmost of your ability and in the best uh, possible light which the law allowed. And So you had to be very careful, punctilious, in that you did not allow your enthusiasm to carry you away and to say or do anything which would be thought to be improper. So that was the discipline also. but I had been the president of the Liberal Club at Glasgow University. I joined in 1959. I joined the Liberal Club as a kind of freshers, sort of freshers' fair. And I kept my interest. And uh, my wife was very active in charitable work, had organized a performance uh, of a very fine opera, by Scottish Opera, which is a well-known opera company, well-established, uh, in aid of shelter, the charity of which David Steele, not then the liberal leader, but certainly a very notable liberal MP, was the president. And he had asked me to go and speak for him in the borders in his own constituency about six months before. And I'd done that. uh, And I hadn't thought anything more of it. But he said to my wife, we need to get men into the House of Commons. And she thought, that's a very good idea. So... Two elections in 1974. I was adopted in uh, a constituency called Greenock from Port Glasgow. Anyone from Scotland will know all that. It's uh, down the and I went and I stood there, and we—I it, it, mean, it, that was wonderful training, <laughs> wonderful discipline, because it was a very safe Labour seat. I mean, no, no prospect that uh, that we were going to win or anything like. It. Although every candidate, there's always the moment when every candidate thinks, "I can win here." Sometimes you think that's wonderful other time you think, oh, my God, what will my life be like? And it it was pretty clear that that wasn't the seat that could be won. And I was encouraged to look around. And there was a seat called East Fife. So I was persuaded to go there. Anyway, what happened was that we got from fourth place to second place the first time. uh, And then the next time we got into, we got, we were in 1983, we were 2,000 behind. or I think, we were winning the week before, and then I was finally elected in 1987 with a majority of 1,447.
0: I mean, the, thinking back to some of the stuff that you've written about the ta- that time, it's, it sounds like quite exhilarating going through those steps as you move through your political career. I mean, you've stayed close to Scotland.
1: Yeah, I'm a Scot. I'm, I'm a, a Sc- Scot, and sir. And, and this is not political, mm-hmm. uh, but I believe very firmly in Scotland, the remaining part of the United
0: Kingdom. So you've had a very long distinguished political career, seen quite a lot, there's been so many changes. Are there any particular highlights or even any reflections on your on yeah. your time?
1: I, I, I stood down um, after 28 years in the House of Commons. i only meant to do two parliaments. My ambition was to be a High Court judge. But the politics is like, what's it printer's ink? It go into my blood. Became fascinated by it. There, notable events? Well, uh, Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister when I was elected, and she dominated the House of Parliament. It looked as if she was unassailable. And then, because of um, internal difficulties in her party, she was gone. It just taught you the fragility uh, of political success, political success and political status. So that made me realize that. You know, politics, uh, well, the famous editor, uh, political editor of The Guardian, Ian Ape, said, politics is a rough old trade. Well, it is a rough old trade. Anyway, I held my seat. We trebled the vote, or, or nearly trebled the vote, and getting over the first defense is always the most difficult. And after that, um, John Major was the Prime Minister, and by the time uh, Tony Blair uh, came along, then I had pretty well cemented myself into the northeast five And I finally decided when it was time to go after I'd done 27 years, and now I find myself in the house of England. So the pace is rather more sedate, but the politics uh, is just as interesting. And there's some very, very talented people here from professions of all kinds, medical, um, economic, uh, accounting, I mean, you, uh, on the crossbench we have got some very very bright people whose contribution is quite different from that of the political parties which are represented here, but which in my view is a, a very significant part of the strength of the House of Lords.
0: In 2002 it was that you were still at the time the MP for North East Fife and at the same time you were a Liberal Democrat chief spokesperson for Foreign Affairs and Defence and that was a um, has always been a, a bit of a specialism of yours, but you, that was the time when you were diagnosed with lymphoma. And yeah. what we hear a lot is about how difficult a lymphoma diagnosis can be because of the vague symptoms and because it, it can take a, a while to diagnose. But can I ask you about your diagnosis
1: of lymphoma? It's a very good question. I had a sore back, um, and I went to uh, and saw a consultant, and he said, oh, "Yeah, a bit of wear and tear. Did you play rugby?" He said, well, yes, I played rugby. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, you, you need some physiotherapy. So I went to actually to sports physiotherapists, same sort of people, young man who was um, physiotherapist for the Scottish rugby team. And after um, three or four sessions of that, it wasn't getting any better. And finally he said to me, I don't think it's your back at all. I think it's your hip. So I went back to the consultants and there was uh, some x-rays were taken and it was all sort of inconclusive. But I was getting more and more pain. And finally, I I didn't quite storm the hospital. (laughs) And I went back and they sent me off for an x-ray for for, for a series of x-rays. When I came back into the room, there were three consultants all looking at the floor because it was pretty clear that from what they now could see, that there was something much more serious than an old rugby injury or something of the kind. And they sent me to the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary the next day to a unit which had the purpose of intensive ex- investigation and, and x-ray for the purpose of the whether or not there was cancer. And I had x-rayed from top to bottom and finally I was asked to go into a little room. And in a rather matter-of-fact way, uh, this diagnostician consultant said to me um, you've got cancer you've got a tumor on the acetabulum uh, and you need to be under the care of a hematologist and it was all said rather like that and then they said would you like transport home and I said no, no, no I want out, I want out of here I walked out and the hospital was sort of down the bottom of the slide and I walked up the hill and there was, I remember that there, there was sleet coming down in mean, Duckett. It wasn't, it wasn't raining, it was thick sleet coming down. Um, and I rang my wife. I said, I mean, I was as blunt with her as the consultant I'd been with. Yes, I've got cancer. And she was at the checkout in the supermarket. And I heard her say, I've got to go. My husband's got cancer. I mean, a huge shock. It, it's clear that serious treatment was required. Um, hematologists rang quite quickly. I had gone to London to try and sort my London affairs out because I knew I was not going to be full time in the of London anymore. And he said, I'm a hematologist. I said, What's that? And he explained that someone who concentrated on cancers of the blood. And I didn't tell anyone, I kept it quiet. And then the next thing that happened was we went to see this haematologist, Mike Mackie, and he was just extraordinary. And in fact, I drafted a press release and I got him to okay it. And he said to me, it's the first time I've ever been asked to okay a press release for a patient. And we put that out, saying I've been diagnosed, um, that the prognosis was optimistic, and that obviously I would be taking up for a less active role in the policy. And I decided quite early on, and I had the luxury of making this decision, which not everyone has. That I wasn't going to go back to London until I was, I was going to say cured, but that's not the right word, until I was in the He said, right, chemotherapy, Friday afternoon suits you? And I said, yeah. And then he said, we're going to put you into a ward on your own. It's a ward that's not used on a Friday afternoon. At one stage, when we were having a conversation uh, about the prognosis, we don't deal in immortality here, he said. It's about the Scottish issue. But it it just made me realise that this was a serious issue and there were no guarantees. Anyway, I I had my uh, chemotherapy. The Dr Mackie said to me, we're doing a trial asking people, if they would be willing to attempt to do fortnight rather than three-week cycle. We think, looking at you and having tested you, and we think you're fit enough for that. Would you, be, would you like to do it? And I said, yeah, because I was anxious to get it on, anything that made it all go quick. And so I did that, uh, and for a fortnight I turned up. And, and after about uh, halfway through, the, 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 the series of x-rays, and when I went into the thoughts of the consultant, because I had a consultant orthopaedic surgeon in case, in case it was necessary, and he said to me, "It's a miracle." I said, "Would well, you really say?" Well, the, the tumour is quite remarkably reduced. It's gone down very, very quickly, I and mean, we're very pleased with it. My, uh, my wife accompanied me uh, on all these occasions, and that kind of support made a huge difference, no question about it. But yeah. My consultant hematologist he said, Yes, it's remarkable that it's gone down so well. But of course, tumors that go down quickly can often come back quickly. So you have to be, um, you have to understand that. Anyway, I got to the end of this uh, fortnightly uh, cycle. I was in pretty poor shape at the end of it. I couldn't eat, and I lost quite a bit of weight. And then it was a question of um, radiotherapy. Uh, and I did that for the requisite period, what we call a fraction, every day for four weeks. And in the course of that, there was a big vote in the House of Commons about military action against Saddam Hussein. But the um, people in, that I was seeing in the um, radiography department, they were very much aligned with the attitude that the Liberal Democrats were taking, we should not be engaging in this war. Well. Because you have to get your fraction at the same time. They arranged for me to have it early one day so I could go to London and then get back. So I didn't lose anything in my treatment, but I went to London and voted against the military action. A very public place, the House of Commons, and it was a very public occasion. But people were amazingly friendly and supportive, and, and it gave me a huge boost, really, that the the place that I regarded as of such importance to me contained such support and and affection. I went through the radio circuit. if I any problem. I was finally signed off. I went back to the House of Commons and rose to ask a question. And I said, take the opportunity, if I may, Mr. Speaker, to thank you personally uh, and all those others who sent messages of support. Which have been a great assistance to myself and my family, but to the business of the day. So the business of the day meant, okay, I'm back. Let's get on with things. I had the regular checkups. And for the first time I felt I really felt very, very nervous. And I was sure there were lumps all over the place. And when I went to tell the Dr. Mechick, he laughed at me. It wasn't one given to laughing, but he laughed at me. So that's what happens to everyone. Everyone, as they're going through this period uh, of um, continued supervision, always thinks in the week or fortnight before it's due that you've got the lump or a bump or something. Can, and then he said a very interesting thing: if the lymphoma was active, you will know before we do. And since then, I went on having checkups for about five years, but of course it was on the on my hip, uh, and I eventually had to have two hip replacements, and I walk about, you wouldn't know, I, I know, if you get two hips done, uh, your balance is never quite the same again. So it's the only sort of continuing feature uh, of my illness, and I went back to work in, in the House of Commons, I was the leader for 18 months when Charles Kennedy had to step down, I was pointed to the Intelligence and Security Committee, one of the most important committees in Parliament, uh, for foreign affairs. Um, I led the British delegation to something called the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. That's an assembly of delegations from all of the countries that are members of NATO. I had a very full and productive time in the Commons. And now I'm in the House of Lords, where the pace is more gentle. But the substance is very, very similar. Although there's not the immediacy in the Lords that there is in the House of Commons.
0: What was really wonderful to hear was the the kind of support that you had from family and friends and indeed from your colleagues across all of the political parties. And no matter what walk of life we hear from people that those connections, those bits of support are what make a huge difference to people's experience. Yes,
1: they do. You need good fortune. You need good treatment, and you need good support. And I've been one of the lucky ones who had all three of these. I mean, my wife has spectacular uh, in her support. And she was uh, working in her office. She overheard them say, I mean, we've really got to um, look after her. I wrote an autobiography. But when it was published, I got quite a few letters from people who'd been in the same position as me, saying that it had been helpful to know that other people were going through the sort of thing, had gone through the sort of things they were going through. But support is absolutely fundamental. And that's why I'm so honored to be the patron of Linferma Act, because it gives me an opportunity to put the little back. And I had such support of family affection and uh, uh, help. Uh, and also generally I had you know I got letter after letter from my opponents, Christmas card after Christmas card. It's not all plain sailing. I mean the way in which I described it uh, mm-hmm. it's as if it's of course it's not plain sailing. There are days when you think God am I ever going to get this right? Um, but the support helps you to get over these days and that's why what we do um, for our action is so fundamental and important.
0: And do you think your experience of the format has changed your perspective on life or work at all?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, not. Um, I mean, I didn't. I didn't wake up and say, no, "Socialist change." Um, I mean, that's partly due to the fact that I was at home. I wasn't traveling around. I, I was at home. I was engaged in the politics, doing all these broadcasts and making statements and writing articles for newspapers, and I had the benefit of what I realized was top quality treatment, but. Gradually, I came to the view that life had changed, that I'd had great thoughts uh, and that one should to be thankful for it. But I do say, I think I'm rather different in mine, of being what was potentially critically ill and which might, critically, uh, as the treatment had failed, had resulted in death. It makes you think, and so it's just...
0: I remember when we were when it was your 80th birthday and we, I think our staff here made a, a wee video for you mm-hmm. to send and when we were speaking about it and you alluded to, to this yourself about the burden that falls on your partner or your care and you had said mm-hmm. how emotional that is for your wife.
1: Let me put it this way. The support doesn't, um, it's not the thing that moves you into remission but it's the thing that helps you to cope with the uh, stresses and strains of the treatment. And the impact on morale uh, and your sense of fatality, if you like, which is inevitable because this is a disease which we know kills people. And um, we should never forget that. We should never forget the fact that people have that in their minds, that the words, it's cancer, carry, it's, carry a very, very particular meaning a kind of overlay of meaning when they are pronounced to any patient,
0: That's why our helpline services, I mean, we started with helpline services and they've been important throughout all the years and still are because that's where people get some of the emotional support when they need it. Um, And so that's, you know, what we try to do constantly for people is to give information and support. Um, And maybe that is even more important for those who might not have those kind of strong family networks.
1: We're all individuals. And we all react differently, and uh, our values in the course of treatment and the extent to which we can cope with it is it, different. And, I, and that's one of the things I, where I think we don't regard everyone like a herd in the entire We, although we're dealing with a lot of people, we, t- we try very hard to recognize in the individual and, and the individual's needs. So one individual's needs may be very similar to another. But there may be some factor which is completely different because you have to be flexible enough so as to produce a support which is special to the person to whom that's being given.
0: And you, you spoke earlier on about what motivated you to become our patron um, mm. and to get involved with the charity. So what do you think is the most rewarding aspect of the, the role of patron that you have with us?
1: Well, the sense that one's putting something back it's just, I, I feel a sense of privilege to be associated with the charity which is so important in so many people's lives, which draws onto it people of enormous uh, aptitude and sensitivity. And to be associated with that uh, is a great privilege in my view. What I hope I provide is some sense that there are people who come out of this. We cannot guarantee it, but what we can guarantee is to provide the mechanisms which allow people to cope uh, and allow people to recover. One does get the sense of people who, albeit in remission, nonetheless are still burdened by the fact that they've had them trauma of some kind. Uh, Their anxiety is still about the possibility of return. And I think the magic moment came for me when one of them consultant said to me you are no more likely uh, to get a recurrence than if you've never had lymphoma at all the other thing is if i were to have a recurrence i know the boundaries of research uh, get pushed further and further away
0: and, and you're absolutely right but there is huge improvements in treatments across different mm-hmm. cancer types and you know one of our goals at the charity is to advocate for better treatment and care so we We do a lot of work on policy and health technology assessments, trying to make sure that the treatments, you know, do get to the people who need them. Because we we do see it as our responsibility to amplify that voice for for people who have lymphoma, who who are affected by lymphoma. And given your experience of politics over so many years, how do you think charities, health charities like ourselves can influence policy? Or do you think there are things charities should be doing more or less of when it comes to talking to the government in terms of things that happen in the health service um, that that actually do impact on, on the care that people get?
1: Well, I think a, a really interesting development uh, for the Informer Act is to join with other charities in the same field and to create, as it were, um, it's not an army, at least um, um, uh, a relationship which allows several charities. How, how many... Uh, I'm in this, what, to 10 or 12?
0: We're part of uh, the Blood Cancer Alliance, and there's 15 charities in there, but also the One Cancer Voice Coalition, which is a wider group of cancer charities, and there are over 50 um, in some cases for some of the work we do there. I
1: I think that's the kind of thing that governments can't ignore. I also think that there's an additional acceptance and understanding of what patients go through we're all the same, but we're all different. We all we, we all have a great deal in common, but we all have our individual characteristics. Uh, and the impact of the diagnosis of cancer has the ability of emphasizing these individual characteristics. And therefore, what charities do and what doctors do and what hospitals do and what governments should do is to understand that these individual characteristics have got to be recognized. Uh, and um, assisted, because often they're the means of fortifying the individual into the mood, which is something they can deal with, and it's something which, if things go well, they can walk away from.
0: And so as somebody who has been there, what one piece of advice would you give to someone who's just been diagnosed or undergoing treat- treatment for lymphoma now?
1: Well, I mean, it's easy for me to say, because I came out the other end. Be positive, and hope that those around you are being positive, too. It's very helpful if you have good support, but if, you, if your support is supportive then some formal action is here for you. I think you have to have confidence in the medical treatment. I mean, I, I will say, I, I go back to saying, I had this great good fortune that I was confident in, in the way in which the National Health Service response was I suppose I wanted to say one thing. If you think that you may have cancer, then you should never hang back. You should go and see about
0: it. Lord Campbell, that brings me to my, my last question. Which is the question we ask all of our podcast guests, which is what brings you joy?
1: Well, in Scotland, we're at Moses. I love sport. I love good sport. It gives me joy. we have been married for 50 years and my wife and man before, we have um, no children of our own, but my stepson has the three sons, uh, and they have added to the gaiety of life. I think what gives me cheer is uh, to see the next generation of sportsmen and increasingly sportswomen. I'm not quite obsessed about this, but <clears throat> I mean, we lose so many uh, young women from sport because when they get to the age of 15 and 16, it seems to them unattractive. And yet there are such wonderful female role models now in women's sport. I I rejoice in good sporting achievement of any kind.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lord Campbell, both for your support for lymphoma action. we really appreciate it and for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Lymphoma Voices podcast. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. And thanks, many thanks to those uh, behind the scenes who... uh, set up the administration and the technology which allows us maybe about 100 miles apart from each other but we're able to talk as if we were, if we were sitting on other side. So, it's a wonderful thing.
0: For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk Lymphoma Action Inform, support, connect.